And joining us now is Ryan Walters, who's part of the business development team at Tallis North America, focused on the Army's future vertical lift and rotary wing programs. He is a retired and highly decorated United States Army aviator who flew with the elite 160th Aviation Regiment, the legendary Night Stalkers, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, having deployed all around the globe on operations. Uh, Ryan, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your audience. So thank you very much. Uh, and I should say that uh, you guys have developed a, a range of products that you'd like the Army and the two competitors uh, for the services, future vertical lift programs, the future long range uh, assault aircraft, as well as the future armed reconnaissance aircraft. I should note our, our sponsor, uh, Bell, is competing for both of those as are uh, Sikorsky and Sikorsky teamed uh, with uh, Boeing, and you want uh, either the Army or the two competitors to adopt that. Uh, you guys briefed reporters a couple of weeks ago on your radar and your helmet-mounted display uh, technology, and we thought it was uh, fascinating in part for the plug-and-play nature of the radar, where power uh, goes in, uh, data comes out without any power conditioners or a lot of other avionics, and ditto for uh, your modular uh, flight displays um, and, and combat systems display it as, as well. Let's start with the Airmaster C uh, radar. What are you bringing to market that's unique from what your competitors are doing, and why is it you guys are so convinced this would be game-changing in an Army aviation application? Thank you for that. Now, Airmaster C is a, is a tactical IESA radar system, and you know, for us, it's smart, it's light, it's small, it's energy efficient, and it's a fully software-defined radar. It's kind of a single all-in-one, you know, line replaceable unit. It does air, ground, and maritime surveillance modes and uh, supports navigation, weather, search, and rescue. And it's really designed to minimize its footprint on, on the platform. So, you know, we're not taking up a lot of real estate, but offering truly a multifunction radar that can meet, meet or exceed the uh, requirements and needs for operators for future vertical lift platforms and the types of environments they're going to operate in. You know, whether that's a littoral maritime or, you know, urban, you know, environment, we think we've got uh, innovative solutions that uh, that are small and are not going to take up a lot of real estate in the platforms, but offer tremendous uh, capability and value to the end user. And and uh, talk to us about the display, its size, capabilities, uh, and how much weight savings it actually constitutes, given that these individual units are pretty light and you're doing away with all of the other avionics that go with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I flew an aircraft that had a, a train following multimode radar that was very capable and it did, you know, train following and some weather radar and, you know, you know features and, and a few other things. But, um, you know, it's much, much larger, still a very capable radar, but that's, that's older technology. So with this being a software-defined radio, or radar rather, um, you know, kind of being a single all-in-one com compact design, you know, we're not putting a lot of other hardware onto the aircraft. So we can essentially put the radar system on, integrate it into your architecture, and then have that capability instead of having to put multiple black boxes uh, on there. So it gives the operator the capability to focus on, you know, outcomes for faster, more accurate decision-making, and it helps their ability to detect, localize, and track targets while maintaining, you know, those long standoff ranges that we think are required. And again, it's, it's small. It's not going to take up a bunch of space. And we know that um, aircraft manufacturers and, and really the, the end user is very sensitive to, you know, weight, weight matters. The more stuff you put on, the more the weight increases and you take that away from your end user or your customer. And uh, we're very sensitive to that. So that's, I think, one of the key discriminators for Airmasters is the size 
and the capability that you get in such a small compact system. Um, let's uh, talk about Fly TX uh, display. This is another thing that you guys have sort of modularized, uh, drawing off the long commercial uh, avionics heritage uh, at Talus, uh, obviously, uh, where you effectively also have power in, sensor data in, and and modular displays that you can use for any application. How how do you guys, um, you know, where are you guys on development of that product? Uh, and how, why do you think it's as needle moving uh, as uh, as you think it is? Yeah, so with Flydex, um, you know, that, that obviously is, is Talos is offering for an avionics suite for, you know, rotary wing aircraft and fixed wing. But, but we, really, we really think it's a unique mission-minded solution that encompasses efficient ergonomics. So you look at some of the traditional systems that are out there for military applications, they're not touchscreen. And they're designed to, to certain specifications, and they're not necessarily, you know, crew-centric, connected, or customizable. So we think, you know, as this continues to work its way onto different platforms and matures, and because of the modularity in the design, you know, it really helps with flight crew operations, you know, and, and really the, it's the heart of the, the aircraft. I mean, that, that mission management system is the heart and soul of the aircraft being able to do its mission. So that if we can enhance that connectivity and make it compact and customizable, then you know it's easy for the operator to use. It's intuitive. We really think that intuitive design, um, you know, with, with the input from actual aviators, is is really a discriminator combined with the fact that it's you know also a very small footprint. We're not putting a bunch of additional hardware or components onto the aircraft, but we're putting in something that could be you know, customizable or can be, you know, expanded over time within the architecture of that aircraft. And uh, we really think that that's a discriminator. Um, both of these uh, systems are developmental items, right? I mean, you guys continue to work on them uh, for these applications. And the Army already has uh, ongoing competitions, right? And each one of the teams uh, has already um, selected their preferred suppliers for things like avionics or, or in-flight systems, mm -hmm. although some of this remains to be determined. So where do you guys stand as, as Talus uh, Visionics uh, in order to be able to get on the-, the So the I work with Talus, yeah, no, absolutely. I work with Talus Visionics, which um, is our helmeted uh, display, you know, uh, business unit within Talus Defense. So we work kind of hand in hand with, with Talus USA and the larger Talus group on these technologies. So I think, you know, we understand and have a pretty good idea of you know the, where the where the OEMs and integrators are going you know with respect to their their suppliers, but that doesn't mean that you know, final decisions are made. You know we think that we we are competitive still because we have a massive global footprint. You know Talos is an international company, and uh, we think we're also very attractive in, in our you know approach to to foreign military sales opportunities as well. So I think you know that um, we're competitive in that space because we're we're innovative and we're willing to. I embrace uh, modular open systems architecture, and that's something that the, the DOD, US DOD, has you know been very vocal about is, is having the ability to to have an open systems architecture and have companies integrate with the right solutions, not you know just a complete end to end solution. So I think kind of the vendor lock will be broken up a little bit in the way that the uh, the US government is looking at procuring avionics and component solutions for future vertical lift and, and for you know, advanced technologies for the enduring fleet, you know, your Chinook, Apache, Blackhawk. So I think that's, uh, again, a discriminator for us as we're willing to, to bring in some innovative solutions that uh, kind of give the, the keys to the end user to help them you know, define what it is they want instead of constraining them to a, a traditional pathway, I suppose. 
um, I, I, I think, you know, where, where it gets really uh, uh, interesting and exciting is what you can actually get off of the airplane uh, as opposed to what you're putting onto it, right? I mean, you, you can get rid of a lot of power conditioners and other sort of avionics and each one of those things obviously has touch labor that goes with it uh, in our maintenance items as opposed to uh, something that's more uh, streamlined. Of course, you have to also get over the concern of, of touch screens uh, which in some applications, the army has been hesitant to embracing. Is there any challenge associated with that, given that you two are also a high time army aviator? Um, is there any problem yeah. with touchscreens as, as far as you're concerned? Uh, me personally, no. I mean, I, I flew an aircraft that had multifunction displays and you know, that was uh, you know, going from, from simple multifunction displays to multiple advanced multifunction displays. I mean, it's it's great to have that information right there and have information at your fingertips. So I think, you know, we're so conditioned to using smartphones and tablets that, you know, it's intuitive. It's become intuitive to kind of work your way through, you know, an Android phone or an iPhone. So, you know, we, in designing a, a cockpit solution, you know, that cruise centric, connected, customizable, compact, you know, touchscreen, it's intuitive design. In fact, you know, taking into consideration human factors so that, you, know, you can't accidentally do something, so it's it's you know always a, a positive move, and pulling that into the the military and civil, you know, architecture is you know is definitely game changing to have a touchscreen. I think as a as a retired army aviator, it would have been nice to have the ability to kind of pinch and zoom and look at certain things instead of having to use a multifunction you know control unit to do it all by hand and and sling a cursor. So it can definitely save time, and uh, we think our design is certainly intuitive and can enhance crew. You know, the crew reaction and the speed at which they do certain tasks or critical tasks in the cockpit, that does matter. Time matters. And if you're uh, not wasting time using a cursor or trying to scroll around and you can actually use a touchscreen, that's that's game changing for us, and especially for the end user. Um, let me uh, take you to the uh, Scorpion helmet mounted uh, display. Uh, it's been adopted in the A-10 uh, fleet and uh, the AC-130 gunship uh, fleet as well. Walk us through why this uh, display uh, is different from what else is on the market now? Yeah, so the Talos Scorpion uh, helmet-mounted queuing system has been around for a number of years, and it has flown successfully in combat on the A-10 F-16, and it's flown in the gunship and is also employed you know, on, on both domestic and global rotary wing platforms or helicopters as well. So you know, it, it brings to the fight and has brought to the fight a color you know, helmet-mounted queuing system with you know, zero perceived latency. So you've got tra you know, head tracking, We've got an optic on the face that's full color, you know, sits behind the night vision goggles and gives you really a tool that uh, helps you pull together all the information out of the cockpit and, and it puts it on the face to support that heads up, eyes out flying. So in the case of an A-10, if you're supporting a, a ground force commander, or a, a JTAC in, on the ground that's, uh, you know, decisively engaged, you can look around and, and use those tools with picture in picture viewing, pulling all the information that's there in the cockpit and around you and really have that three-dimensional you know, kind of 360 degree view of the battle space below you um, to know where friendly forces are at, to know where enemy threats are at, or to exchange information with your wingman or other uh, platforms that are fighting the fight. So you know, we've taken that and uh, like I said, it's, it's you know, been out for a number of years flying successfully, combat proven, full color, conformal symbology and you know MVG compatible. And we're taking that as the pedigree into What'll be uh, our next uh, generation offering, specifically for future vertical lift and advanced rotor wing platforms. So Scorpion uh, was game changing in its day, and it still remains a, a very capable system that still has a lot of relevancy for enduring fleet and uh, 
potentially in some cases future vertical lift as well. And that, uh, that motion tracking uh, really is where we uh, we spend a lot of our time and resources is getting that right. And uh, again, delivering a capable, affordable situational awareness tool that really uh, gets eyes out of the cockpit and gets eyes outside, uh, enhancing crew safety as well. Ryan, thanks very much. Best of luck uh, on the programs. Absolutely fascinating uh, and look forward to uh, connecting again in the future. Thanks so much. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to, uh, to be a competitor in the space and looking forward to some great stuff on future vertical lift and enduring fleet for the U.S. Army. Thank you. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Avago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a range of new Tallis North America products to improve the performance of Army aircraft with less weight and complexity. But first, joining us is Sam Bendet, who is part of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses and affiliated with the Center for a New American Security to discuss rising tensions in the Caucasus between Azerbaijan and Iran over Azeri tariffs on Iranian shipments through the Army. Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh that is Tehran's only land route to Europe. Azerbaijan, backed by Turkey and Israel, retook large chunks of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh back from Armenian control last year with Russia brokering a ceasefire and stationing troops in the enclave. Azeri, Turkish, and Georgian forces are participating in military exercises as we speak, exercises that are also said to include uh, Israeli technicians given uh, their role in supporting uh, Azerbaijan's military. Sam, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me back on the show, Wago. Always a pleasure indeed. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA is sponsoring our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's conference and trade show uh, next week in Washington, D.C. Um, Sam, uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. Uh, obviously, a complex uh, situation. Uh, there's always been a concern that uh, this uh, conflict, uh, I, I would say, among uh, Armenia, Russia, Azerbaijan, Turkey uh, could spill over into a much wider uh, regional conflict that, uh, and as we can see, there is an alliance developing uh, among Turkey, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Israel is involved in that as a, obviously a supplier to uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, Iran, uh, on the one hand, uh, has been suspicious uh, that the Azeris are going to cut the southern tip of Armenia off, uh, effectively uh, connecting Nakhichevan, the uh, Azerbaijani exclave of Nakhichevan, to Azerbaijan proper. And that would completely encircle uh, Armenia, right? The only route in and out of Armenia was uh, the Iranian uh, border. And, and clearly, that route is important for Iran to get its uh, stuff via land. Where does Russia stand in this crisis right now? So obviously, Russia is very concerned. Russia maintains its peacekeepers along with the Turkish peacekeepers in the Nagorno-Karabakh territories that eventually will have to be handed over to Azerbaijan um, at some point. Uh, Russia maintains a military base in southern Armenia as well. Uh, so it is open to cooperation with Armenian forces. It is open to cooperation with the Armenian government. It has communicated such cooperation, willingness to settle things peacefully. So of course, Russia is concerned about the rising tensions 
and especially all the saber rattling that is taking place with Iran pulling its forces to the Azeri border with um, Turkey, Azerbaijan and Georgia now engaged in a military exercise as well, of course, with Armenia trying to rearm as well. So uh, this is a very unstable situation, probably more unstable than it has been for a very long time. Of course, Russians recognize that Iran would have preferred the status quo, meaning it would have preferred Nagorno-Karabakh partially in Armenian hands so that they could maintain their land bridge through Armenia to other markets. But the situation is even more complicated because these aren't just uh, adversaries in a geopolitical sense, they're also trade partners. For example, Armenia, uh, excuse me, Iran and Turkey are uh, very active trade partners. At the same time, they're also geopolitical competitors. Uh, and so uh, this situation is probably uh, exacerbated by the fact that Iran keeps saying that there's an Israeli presence in southern Azerbaijan. Uh, Iran is concerned that uh, its own ethnic Azeri minority, which uh, could be anywhere between 20 to 30 percent of the population, depending on uh, who is writing about it, uh, could also be in play. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of concern coming from Iran. There's a lot of concern coming from Azerbaijan, certainly a lot of concern in Armenia at this entire situation. But Russia wants everyone to, I guess, settle down to the point where whatever tensions exist uh, should be negotiated peacefully without pulling so much military hardware to the border within just a few miles from each other. Um, so how realistic uh, is it that Azerbaijan would try to take that southern tip of Armenia. I can understand uh, the importance as they see it, but I think that there's already a transit corridor that's been established uh, through Armenian territory to connect those two anyway as part of the, the deal, uh, the, the ceasefire that was broken. So walk, walk us through what would be the advantage of this, right? I mean, we can also understand why Iran would be making uh, a big deal about this, but I mean, if you control the territory, you can put tariffs on vehicles that are passing through there. I think the Azerbaijanis said that uh, at the beginning of this, whereas there are those who look at the, the seizure uh, of Armenian territory proper to be a step that nobody's likely going to want to take. On the other hand, right, that's not stopped Azeri forces from shooting at, you know, Armenian uh, installations. Uh, you know, I mean, that was a skirmish that actually presaged the wider uh, war uh, was, uh, was was an Armenian uh, Azeri attack on Armenian territory. So, I mean, you know, is, is there anything that would stop a, a combined uh, Azeri Turkish Georgian force uh, from doing that, or do you think that that would be a red line that nobody would want to cross, which would trigger Russia? It would probably yeah. be a red line. Um, it would be a red line. Uh, Russia communicated um, in not so subtle uh, fashion last year that attack on Armenia proper is a red line. Um, Nagorno Karabakh, as an unrecognized territory by much of the world, was basically in play. And so as long as the conflict was limited to Nagorno-Karabakh, it was one thing. If conflict were to spill over to Armenia proper, it would become a major international crisis. So it is highly un unrealistic that uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey would launch a military operation to cut Armenia off from Iran and to seize the territory around Zangezo region and create the actual land bridge, because that would actually trigger a lot of uh, other commitments and uh, would pull in many other players. Iran recently uh, claimed through some of its publications, not officially, but through some of its media outlets and via some of its politicians, that if uh, there is an Azeri, uh, if there's an Azeri action uh, 
in southern Armenia to seize the territory or to limit uh, the territorial passage in, in more ways than one, then Iran would actually attack. It is, again, unlikely that Iran would risk a major regional war, even though Iran is obviously a much bigger military force than Azerbaijan. But Iran obviously keeps an eye out on Turkey, which has recently become a very significant high-tech military force and a professional military force. But once again, any attack on Armenia proper would trigger a different number of commitments and would probably pull in a lot of international players, including Russia, which is why so much action is taking place at the very edge of those commitments, meaning not necessarily Armenia proper, but the territory that is just a few kilometers away. Uh, for Iran, its military exercises and drills are happening a few kilometers from the Azeri-Armenian border. For Turkey and Azerbaijan, the military drills in the Nahichivan region, which is Azeri territory, are also taking place within immediate proximity to, um, to Armenia proper. But it is unrealistic that uh, there would be an actual attack on the Armenian territorial integrity. You know, you were kind enough uh, to join us as uh, Mike uh, Kaufman, uh, your colleague and head of the Russia program, Dr. Kaufman, uh, and uh, Dr. Eugene Rumer uh, also joined us of Carnegie. Uh, and, you know, we discussed this in numerous programs. It was a technological watershed uh, that the entire world has been studying in how Azeri forces used uh, Turkish and Israeli uh, precision strike drones uh, to negate sort of the, the uh, historic land combat advantages of the Armenian army. Um, what has been changing over the last uh, many months, right? Um, Azerbaijan is a very wealthy country. It's pouring a lot of money into this. Obviously, it tasted success uh, in this uh, conflict, saw the international community do very, very little, if anything, to help Armenia in the process uh, materially. Um, you know, where, where do we stand in terms of, because there's a sense that there will be many more waves of conflict as we go through this, right? That this is not over uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So, so where are we in the, the modernization or catch-up phase or the next phase of this, given how expertly um, these um, unmanned systems were leveraged in that last war? Azerbaijan proved that a small conventional military that has new and legacy systems when matched with advanced technologies like UAVs, like lowering munitions, the long-range drones can be very successful. But we also must not forget that Azerbaijan suffered very heavy ground force casualties because they were willing to sacrifice more soldiers than Armenia to actually achieve their objectives. And we've recently heard that the actual numbers of, uh, of dead and uh, wounded may be much higher than officially announced last year for both sides. So this wasn't necessarily just a high-tech conflict but it was also kind of a good old fashioned ground force, special forces conflict where there were numerous casualties. But yes, a small country like Azerbaijan proved that it could achieve a lot when investing wisely in new technology. So clearly Armenia learned the lesson insofar as it is also trying to re-equip and modernize its force with different weapons and systems. There's probably a lot of discussion happening within the Armenian MOD about their priorities what they should be investing in. Should it be modern UAVs, loitering munitions, aircraft? 
Shortly after the conclusion of the conflict last year, Armenia announced that it actually had a loitering munition of its own and that it had different other UAVs that didn't necessarily make it into the Nagorno-Karabakh war. So there's a recognition that new technologies matter. And of course, Turkey is riding the wave of um, its PR success in this war. And it is rapidly gaining international customers for its Bayraktar drones and other drones all over the world, across the Middle East, uh, in Eastern Europe, in Africa and other parts um, of the world. Iran, of course, is very cognizant of it all. And Iran sees itself as a major military power at that nexus of the Caucasus. And so it is trying to prove through this military exercise taking place near Azeri border that it is a powerful military force that it can bring in a lot of infantry, a lot of uh, mechanized infantry, a lot of different weapons and systems, including aircraft and long range drones to bear if necessary. So I think all nations involved, including small Georgia, which has its own uh, plans to build a medium altitude, long endurance drone, whether they can actually do that is another story, but apparently Georgia is also interested in some form of Turkish drone imports as recently indicated. So all the countries in the region are, are cognizant of the role that new technology like UAVs can play in ISR and combat. At the same time, they're also very cognizant that these, these drones and these UAVs must be integrated very well with ground formations and that a ground war with UAVs is still going to result in numerous casualties for all sides involved. And the question is whether a country in that region is willing to accept these casualties. I should uh, briefly point out that uh, Nakhichevan was historically Armenian, but shifted over uh, to um, Azeri uh, control um, in the early 1900s. And certainly um, once Lenin, I think it was 1921, um, granted uh, the, the territory to Azerbaijan. Um, okay, Sam, so where do we go from here? Well, it's unlikely that this saber rattling will actually devolve into a full-blown military conflict. I think while all parties involved are very concerned about the other side's increasing military strength, they nonetheless are probably not interested in an additional round of combat that can have a detrimental effect on economies and societies in the region. In fact, Azerbaijan announced recently that it wants to peacefully integrate Armenia into its uh, economic traffic flows with Turkey uh, and that a peaceful a resolution is probably more preferable uh, for Iran. A conflict in the region would actually mean um, significant long-term damage to its economic flows through Armenia and other parts of the Caucasus. And uh, whether or not Turkey and Azerbaijan are willing to take additional casualties remains to be seen. But again, all countries in the region are interested in a peaceful outcome so that they can continue uh, gaining benefits from their economic and other relationships that have been established. A return to the status quo for Iran, for example, may not be possible because parts of Nagorno-Karabakh will be turned over to Azerbaijan. Uh, but at the same time, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Armenia are probably interested in a peaceful resolution and um, some kind of a new economic framework in the region that will integrate all countries uh, without, again, devolving to military combat. And this would, of course, appease Russia as well, because it is not interested in a military conf uh, confrontation of this kind and scale at its southern borders. 
it, uh, it probably has no appetite for, for continued fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So I think all the drills and military exercises taking place today will eventually end and the forces will return to their barracks. Each side is trying to show the other side that it is more powerful, better equipped and willing to, uh, to confront militarily should uh, something change. But I think reality would be very different. Again, we're talking about a convergence of multiple advanced military forces with long-term fighting experience. And so this would not be a short conflict. This would be a very unfortunate conflict for the region. And I think most players are in the end not interested in a full-blown war there. Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always great having you on. Thanks so much, Vago. Always happy to be on. And a brief word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.